Jaron Cacophony tells you that you're listening to the Power of Three podcast, where three lifelong Doctor Who fans, I'll introduce them to you shortly, discuss, enthuse and occasionally criticise a trio of products related to our favourite show. That might be televised adventures, both classic and recent. It could be spin-off novels, books about the show, biographies, magazines, DVD releases, basically anything that gives us the excuse to talk about Doctor Who. Subscribe to us on iTunes, and if you like us, leave a review. If you don't like us, don't. Follow us on Twitter at PowerOf3Pod. That's three as a number, PowerOf3Pod. We also have a Facebook page where you can leave comments, suggestions, and, of course, listen to episodes of this podcast. So let me introduce you to my two co-conspirators. David, say hello. Hello, I'm David, and I'm a skinny guy from Paisley who used to wear a pinstripe suit to work every day. Kenny. Hi, I'm Kenny. I'm not such a skinny guy, and I have a brown pinstripe suit that I sometimes wear to work, but not very often. There is a link between the three things that we're going to review today, um, but before I explain what that link is, I'll let you listen to this. This session of the High Council Time Lords is now in progress. Chicken, you think? Yes. The space-time parameters of the Matrix have been invaded by a creature from the antimatter world. I am not of your dimension, Time Lord. It won't be that easy to track this creature down. The universe is rather a big place. And there is an easier alternative. To kill you? Saw the Doctor. How? You must find the Doctor, and the rest will fall into place. The creature must be expelled immediately if we are to avert disaster. He'll find a way to help us. You will convey him to a place of termination. We had a discussion about how we actually choose the three items that we're going to review in each episode. Rather than make it completely random, we've decided that there should be some kind of link. And before I explain what that link is, I'll ask Kenny to describe what TARDISFandom.com says about the Ark of Infinity. Well, it tells you that Ark of Infinity was the first serial of season 20 of Doctor Who. Janet Fielding returned as Tegan in this serial rejoining the Fifth Doctor and Nyssa on their travels. Colin Baker made his Who debut in the story, playing Commander Maxwell. And just over a year later, he would take over as the Doctor at the end of season 21. Of the several Doctor Who stories filmed outside the UK in the late 70s to early 80s, this was the only one which actually opened a season. Thank you. What these uh, items today have in common, starting with Ark of Infinity, is that we have decided rather obscurely, to look at uh, adventures, two television and one audio adventure, that include the appearance of an actor who has or will in the future play the Doctor, but on these occasions are playing completely different characters. I hope you can follow me with that. So basically we're choosing Ark of Infinity because, as Kenny just said, Colin Baker makes his Doctor Who appearance a year before he was actually cast as the lead character. Davy, what do you think of Arkham Infinity? Um, and I wouldn't say to listeners what you actually called it in a WhatsApp message to me because <laughs> it was very, very rude. Yeah, I stole, I stole, um, I stole that from Alan McLean many years ago. So yeah, Arkham Infinity is a story that I quite, I'm, I'm quite fond of it in a sort of um because I remember it so well. 
from transmission. The um, Omega coming back was very, very exciting because it hadn't been that long since the, the three doctors had been repeated. And of course, we knew who Omega was. But, you know, it's interesting because I think if I hadn't seen the three doctors repeat the story itself, doesn't really give you too much information about who Omega is and why he's so important to the Time Lords. Um, it's an in interesting story from the point of view for the fact that um, it's it's just the fifth Doctor and Nissa together because Big Finish and Big Finish have gone on to do some really really good stories in the sort of gap between Time Flight and Arc of Infinity with just stories with the Doctor and Nissa on their own. Um, and it's also I think it's the point where the the fifth Doctor kind of um, becomes a bit sort of bland. He becomes Joe Exposition, and you kind of lose the the sort of nice, sort of gentle sarcasm that Peter Davison has through much of his, his first story, his first season, I should say, sorry. Um, the Gallifrey scenes, which are quite interesting when you're 10 years old, because the Time Lords are very interesting when you're 10 years old, aren't as quite as exciting and stimulating as they could be, and a lot of it's played very straight and a very, very sort of... It is, it's, I think it's the beginning of, um, you know, Doctor Who starting to take itself a little bit too seriously for a while. Um, the Amsterdam stuff is lovely, though. And it's it's nice to have them running about Amsterdam rather than just running up and down corridors. See, that's my one of my issues is the fact that they're running, as you say, they're running up and down cor they're virtually running up and down corridors and everything. But name, here we are, we're in Amsterdam. Look at us, we hey, we've got the budget. Yeah. And so what? It could be yeah. Liverpool. They could be running up and down. Yeah. I just think it's the most pointless example of Doctor Who using foreign filming. There's no reason for it to be in Amsterdam. It could as well have been in Bristol. Salisbury, Glasgow, Glasgow Lyle, yeah, Paisley. Probably would have made it a lot more interesting for, for the... Yeah, for more the guys with chips carrying them about. That would make Paisley <laughs> more interesting. <laughs> give, give them a break. They, they spend so much time filming in quarries. You don't want to send them to Paisley after that. <laughs> <laughs> I just find it's a story that's just so bland. It's just not... I mean, it, there's some good performances in there, but the script is just so ho-hum... Here's some Time Lords. They've got big collars on. Time Lord talking, Time Lord talking, bloody, bloody, shut up and just got on with the story. There's well, just so much dull banality going on. It's just not a favourite story of mine. I missed the first episode when it was broadcast as I wasn't aware the new series was back. So when I caught up in episode two, it's just a case of, oh, right, okay. And I just, I didn't enjoy it then. And in terms of a script, it's just... <laughs> I think there are some weak points in it, but I must admit, and, and I'll, I'll confess once again, this is the first time I've watched this show since it was first originally broadcast. And unlike another classic adventure that we reviewed in a recent podcast, which I had to watch for, for the first time since it was broadcast. It seems ages uh, since we did that podcast. It seems a long time, doesn't it? Um, whereas in, in the case of the Ark of Infinity, I actually found myself quite eager to watch the next episode as I was going through it. I was really enjoying it, much more than I thought I would. Because I remember when this was first shown, I did, it did leave me a bit cold. I, I thought it was the story was weak. I didn't think it was all that interesting. I, I remember thinking that when Peter Davison announced that he was moving on from the role, he had mentioned in one interview that he thought that some of the stories that he'd recently been involved in were, were too weak. And I immediately assumed that Ark of Infinity was the culprit. However, having watched it just in the last few days, I, I really enjoyed it. I love Peter Davison as a oh, doctor. He's brilliant. I'm not denying um, that. He's fantastic. He's just great in every every episode. And it's great that he's chasing himself around the streets of, of Amsterdam in the last episode. There was a lot to love in this. I, I love Sarah Sutton. 
one of the things that disappointed me, of course, is that Omega, I mean, I didn't understand why they were bringing him back and there wasn't really a big fanfare. I mean, he was a huge character in season 10 with the, the three Doctors. And yet here he turns up and he's he's just a bit of a heavy. Yeah, it could be anyone yeah. taking that role. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, I think it was done because it was the 20th anniversary and John Nathan Turner made a big fuss about we're going to have one returning element in each story for the whole 20th anniversary. And and I think, I genuinely think it was, it must, the, the repeat of the three Doctors must have had something to do with it. Yeah, maybe. You know, because a lot of the fans would, that's you know, would have the way seen John it, Nathan you know. Turner's mind tended to work, fan-pleasing moments that people yeah. remember. But can we talk about the space chicken? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, you know, it's, it's good old Ergon. It's a, it's a weird one. You know, this, the Ergon, like, like the whole story, my my feeling on it changes every time I watch it. This time the story as a whole I found a bit underwhelming. I didn't mind this, the Ergon this time. I thought, that's quite, yeah. <laughs> why, why couldn't they have brought the gel guards back? Oh, I don't know. Maybe could the gel guard have pointed a gun and... and yeah, they had a big well? claw. Yeah, they had the fiery claw. You know, at least it would have given us a, a better clue that it was well, oh my god. Well, I mean, that's 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 an interesting point as well because you do sort of wonder that then leads to the question: Why did they redesign Omega's? Yeah, costume quite so much. Yeah, no, I, think I think it was a pointless redesign because the original costume is great. It's yeah. so iconic that mask. Yeah. Now, presumably shape. they were worried that if you saw the iconic mask, you would immediately know it was Omega, but you wouldn't have needed to see it. You could have been, had him in shadow, you could have yeah. had the point of view from behind him or, or whatever. Yeah. There, there was ways around it. I just think it was a bit of a pointless, uh, disparate, you know, getting rid of a very iconic costume. Really, yeah. it wasn't it's, it's almost It's almost sort of self self defeating If you're going to bring a character like that back, why would you not bring him back looking the way he did? And have him played by a different actor as well. I know, yeah. But I, I, I liked the, the scenes in Gallifrey. I mean, it is true that when the Time Lords first appeared at the end of the War Games, they're, they're almost ethereal and all-powerful and you don't know anything about them. And you get to Deadly Assassin and it's basically just a another far future civilization like everything else and you, they never quite get back that mystique and they certainly haven't got the mystique in this one but I really enjoyed it I loved the the actors you know Michael Goff was wonderful um I thought Colin Baker was terrific actually I thought he was really the maximum you tell he's loving it he's absolutely loving yeah. it he's thinking yeah. I'm in Doctor Who this is the only chance I'm going to get at it so I'm going to have great fun and he definitely does feed this into the matrix don't you recognize the Lord President's seal? I will need to confirm your authorization. Arrest him, please, please. Well, perhaps I spoke in haste, but but to recall a TARDIS, and, and without prior announcement, well, you must understand my position. It's not without due and proper consideration that this decision has been made. Where do you want the TARDIS located? The security compound. And only I am to have access. Tell my men when the TARDIS arrives. They'll be waiting outside. I think he's. I think Colin's brilliant in it. I. I. I can't lie. I found the. I found the Gallifrey scenes quite humdrum this time I watched it. It's interesting that the Doctor seems to know everyone, <laughs> which is quite funny. Ah, my old friend, Councillor Hedden. Yeah, and, and he knows. And I mean, Here's the guy. Demo. The guy playing Beruza in this case is Leonard Sachs. I thought he was terrible. <laughs> I really, I mean, I, I in didn't... the good old days, he was played by somebody far better. Yes, right. see what I did there. I see, you get I what I did, did there? there. 
I see you did there. Um, I just felt that there was. I enjoyed the Amsterdam stuff. I liked the sub-American werewolf in London thing, the two guys on holiday in Europe and getting into trouble. It was it's um it's an interesting coincidence that when they, they, the one time that they happened to, you know to leave Britain that they meet Tegan again in Amsterdam. That's all. Yeah. That's all fine. And surely that could have been a reference later in the season that could just throw in all the Black Guardian fixed it up. Literally yeah. a throwaway yeah. line could have made it all make yeah, sense. Exactly. That's that's the sort of thing I think that you know in later later a, a more invested script editor might have picked up on. I mean, I, th- I think it, it really, it really kind of, it really divided me this story when I watched it this time. There was some stuff I liked a lot. I didn't like the Gallifrey stuff and I think it's, it's just so pedestrian. That's know, a great word for it, which is quite ironic considering the wander around all the pedestrian avians know, in Amsterdam. I know. Maybe, maybe that was deliberate. I don't know. There's, there's a question I want to ask about Colin and Robin, the two backpackers. Yes. Um, I know where you're going with this. Do you think they were cast because there were no actors available? <laughs> not where I thought you were going with that. that oh, my word. Oh, no. Um, they were, they were dreadful. Yes. They were awful. There's a funny bit when the Australian one says, I'm not too keen on, I'm not too keen on the neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> one of them's Australian. I didn't pick up yeah. on that. Yeah, Tegan's cousin. Yeah. I didn't realise he had an Australian of accent. Oh, I don't know. Maybe... maybe um, Maybe there are different Australian accents in the same. No, he doesn't have an Australian accent. God, no, I, mean, I didn't it's, pick um, up on it at all. Yeah, it's um, that wasn't where I thought you were going to go there either at all. Well, I mean, I could also mention that there's very typical BBC nepotism here, which always irritates the hell out of me, because Colin Fraser was played by the son of a, of Doctor Director Fiona Cumming. You know, I mean, it doesn't take much for the BBC to you know give a nod and a wink to the favoured sons, and it's usually favoured sons rather than favoured daughters. But yeah. you should look him up on on IMDb and see what other acting he he did ever. Yeah. You know, I suddenly, I mean, I've got I've, I've stuck it on in the background here while we're recording, and and it's just sort of struck me that a bit of a missed opportunity in the twentieth anniversary and all that was to not get Louise Jameson back. Yes. You know, that would have been really interesting. Just you know, if, I don't know if it was, you know, because there was a mention of her. Yeah. It would have been nice to see her. The other, the other thing we should say, of course, about Colin being in it is this: this is this got him the job as the Doctor. Yeah, yeah. Because someone got married in the production team, Colin was invited because they all got song along, and and John Nathan Turner was impressed enough by him to cast him. So it's um, it's really interesting that from that point of view. Because I don't know how you felt, but watching it every time I watch Ark of Infinity now, I get that slight disconnect when he pops up because you think, no, wait a minute, that's the Doctor. Mm-hmm. And There's not I remember many who get to play two Time Lords, although exactly. we'll come to yeah, that later. Yeah. I think was, I must mention, a friend of ours, Dave McNay, he always highlights um, a line that was in a fanzine at the time that speculated, around uh, about the time that the Peter Davison's regeneration was going to be broadcast, um, someone was speculating that Maxwell would actually be involved in the regeneration. Um, the, the line that Dave always quotes is... Um, Ma- the doctor stumbles into Maxwell, who is still recovering from the Daleks' blast, and the bodies fuse. And that's obviously not what we got, but it would have been really interesting if they'd done something like that. If you know Maxwell either got Maxwell involved in the regeneration, or you know the doctor took over Maxwell's body in a similar way to the way the master took over Tremas, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's quite a nice thought. You know, the fact there's two of them. Of course, later one of the big finish audios has got uh, Commander Maxwell making a brief appearance. Just a one-liner uh, oh, from really? Colin, which oh, was really? dropped. It, yeah, it was dropped. It was one. Of, I think it's a Gallifrey series three. And it's played um, by Colin, did you say? Played by Colin again. That's yeah, brilliant. And it's, it's literally just it's a literally a drop-in recorded line elsewhere. So it's quite a nice wee touch. I like that. Cool. Here, here's a, here's a question for you guys. I mean, I presume you're also Blake Seven fans as I am. Indeed. 
Colin Baker appeared as Bayban in uh, City at the Edge of the World uh, three years earlier. Um, did that, and he was very good in it. I thought, did, did that play any part in his being uh, cast in Ark of Infinity? Is there any kind of causal link there, or was it too long, too too far apart? I don't. Th- I think it was too far apart. I think it's just the fact that they were looking for a an actor who could play a good heavy guard yeah. commander sort. But of course, yeah. the other actor they considered, and I think I did mention this in a previous episode, that they considered for the part of Maxwell was Pierce Brosnan. Wow. Course. That's from Doctor oh, Who the eighties. That that's horrible though. That means that we might have had Piers Brosnan as a sex doctor. Ugh. <laughs> I can't imagine anything worse. And that would have meant Piers Brosnan being dropped from both his role in Doctor Who and James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how unlucky could you get? <laughs> I think Ark of Infinity's has got a great cast. As some of the parts there, um, Councillor Hedden's great. Michael Goff. And you think Michael Goff? This is putting on. To get that, you know, that later burst in his career from Tim Burton, um, you know, long before he did the Batman films, Sleepy Hollow, and such like, he's great. Um, and I mean, Ian Collier, yeah, he's, he's very he's, much a different. He's a different Omega, um, but I mean, he's got such a wonderful voice. He definitely is memorable for that. And again, he's great when he did his big finish comeback. Well, but I wish. For, well, why didn't they get Stephen Thornton in to do it? Was he not available? I have no idea. No That's idea. one that I don't I th- know. I mean, I think. His voice is actually quite similar. They're not, you know, as a, a similar sort of. Do you know the problem was the problem was that when Stephen Thorne did Omega in Three Doctors, um, it didn't sound like he was speaking from behind a mask because they'd recorded the sound separately. Whereas Ian Collier in Ark of Infinity, it sounds like a guy in a mask, and I and it, it lost a lot of its power because of that. Yeah. It wouldn't matter so much if Stephen Thorne wasn't reprising the role, but the fact that they didn't even bother recording it separately in a studio, they just said to the guy in the math right, just speak. And it just sounded terrible. I, thought, I, I was really disappointed in that aspect of it. I think he's still got a great voice, though. It's, it's just, yeah, I agree that it's not given it to its full potential, particularly when you hear him doing the, the DVD extras and things like that, and you think, what a wonderful voice. I could listen to you reading yeah. the phone book. Or, or recipe instructions. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I love Peter Davison. I really enjoyed this story. It has its faults, but I, I am glad I got the opportunity to watch it again. It just reminded me how much I enjoyed the show at that period and its, and its uh, evolution. I think Davison's great, but the bizarre thing, when I watched him back, you think, considering that he's, you know, he does quite a lot of comedy stuff these days, and you know things that get a lighter touch to how little humour his doctors allowed. Yeah. And yeah. Obviously, it's coming yeah. in the aftermath of Tom Baker in season seventeen. Yeah. Yes, there's been a pull down that, but Davison gets so little good humorous yeah. stuff. I mean, to work with. So that's that's what I was saying at the start. Is he? There's a nice sort of. He's, the doctor's got a nice line in sort of dry sarcasm through season um season nineteen, but it kind of evaporates in season twenty when he's, he's a lot of the time he's literally just stood there explaining what's happening. He gets it back a little bit in season twenty one. You know, cause, you know, especially in Androzani, when he's when he's very cheeky and all. But it's it's you can tell that Davison, you can you, you can tell that season twenty would have been wouldn't have been as satisfying for him, and it's probably what led him to leave. You know, they don't they really don't give the Doctor too much to do at all. Do we think that uh, Janet Fielding has a right to feel just a bit put out by the look in the Doctor's face in the very last scene when she says she's inviting herself back on the TARDIS? <laughs> He's not very happy at all, is he? Brilliant, that, isn't it? I think that's part of the relationship between Peter and Janet, which is always well worth listening to. Yeah. There's a, there's a big finish story which is set like immediately after Ark of Infinity, which, you know, 
goes into a bit more depth about what Tegan had been up to, you know, in, in between. Was it Waters of Amsterdam? I think it was called. That's the one. Um, yeah, that, that's that's quite funny. It plays up a little bit more than the reactions to being reunited and stuff. That's quite good. Okay, let's move on. Before you move on, moving on. Oh, good. I'd like to uh, bring you another of my great Doctor Who jokes. Oh, oh good, really. Good. Good. Where does a Norse god keep his money? I don't uh, know. Um, Where does a Norse, a Norse money? The purse of Fenric. Shame. 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 So in previous episodes, we've talked about Doctor Who birth stories. And we asked people on Twitter to tell us what story was broadcast closest to their own date of birth. Um, and I've got a few more to read out. And I particularly like this one. This is from Walter Dunlop. He says, In astrological terms, I was born on the cusp of Inferno 7 and Terror of the Autons 1. Not a normal place to sit, but a fun one. All grim and gritty, but lovely and dayglow and silly at the same time. Simon Hart says, Midway between Revenge of the Cybermen and Terror of the Zygons, so I'm a bit camp with horrific undertones. <laughs> Which I'm sure could be said of so many Doctor Who fans. And, and especially, definitely of Simon. Very Pete Lambert says, just after the end of season 10, which was also the last ever episode caption of Doctor Who, I'll still never, I, I, I'm, I'll still never can, I presume it means call, I'll still never call them parts, though. Mark Trevor Owen, uh, I just made it into a season arriving between episodes four and five of The Demons. Spike and Hill says, ha, I'm midway between The Mind of Evil, Episode 6, and Claws of Axis, Episode 1. So partly gritty realism with butch men, and partly dayglow and slightly camp. That's the same guy. I have no comment to make at this time. Yeah, very wise, mate. Um, George the Lovebird, whose birthday is 28th of May 1967, Evil of the Daleks, Episode 2. And Lang Walk Hame, I that's, presume that's, that's my friend Peter Watson. I, I presume he's Scottish. Yes. He says the closest to me is the three doctors, which is nice, especially because my wife's is the five doctors. Fated, really. And you know, I wish I and I wish I'd read this last night before we reviewed the last thing, because this is from Andrew Parker. I was born in October 1982. Episode one of Arc of Infinity is the closest episode. So there I'm we are. Give, give a quick shout out to my wee sister. Um, because Alison, she commented on Facebook, um, her birth story was Nightmare of Eden. And right. I want to give a shout, shout out to my pal Kelly because she was born between two episodes of the repeat of the Pirate Planet. So there you go. Dave, this is not commercial radio. We don't do <laughs> shout outs. Of course we do. We're not people radio. Of course we do. People love if you're going to do shout outs, I'm going to do Hooniverse again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a podcast for Whovians that enjoy shout outs, Kenny. Right, before we go on to our next episode, let's hear this audio clip from it. You see? There's nothing to worry about. Ace, we don't know what's out there. It's a courtyard. Big buildings all around us. Some grass over there. I can't make out much. It's getting dark. I've just realised where we are, Ace. What's the problem? No time to explain. Come on. But we haven't even been shot at yet. It's only a matter of time I assure you. Run! You are Britishers? Yeah, that's right. Nazis again. I can't stand Nazis. You will consider yourself my prisoners. For you, the war is over. 
Right, what does TARDISFANDOM.com say about the big Finnish adventure Colditz, Kenny? It says that Colditz was the 25th story in Big Finish's monthly range. It was written by Steve Lyons and featured Sylvester McCoy as the Seventh Doctor and Sophie Aldred as Ace. Short and sweet. I listened to this, I'm listening to them all in, uh, in chronological order at the moment as they were released, but I skipped forward to listen to Colditz because I knew we were going to be reviewing it, and I, I really enjoyed it. The link, of course, uh, is that David Tennant plays... Now, remind Belt me of... Vabel Kurtz. Kurtz, right, yeah. Belt Vabel, sergeant in German. And he he, uh, he plays him very well, very camp, very over-the-top, very German, um, and, and unmistakably David Tennant. I mean, it's, it's difficult to avoid imagining him standing uh, in a castle wearing a Nazi uniform, giving Ace a, a hard time. And he's very good in it. I, I really enjoyed his performance. And the story overall is, is, is really, really, really entertaining. A wee bit complicated on the timey-wimey stuff. I still wasn't quite sure how to get my head around the actual um, convoluted plot. But the context and, and where it was set... The performances, including from Sylvester McCoy, um, all really good. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Tom, I'm making Sylvester McCoy shock. Well, <laughs> no. I'm just about to say, my jaws just hit the floor. Um, <laughs> but yes, I think uh, Colditz is great because for me, Steve Lyons is one of those writers who, in the BBC books, the Virgin books, and with Big Finish, every single time he, you see his name in a story, you know it's going to be a good, solid Doctor Who, like Justin Richards. He's one of the most dependable writers you can go to. You know that you'll get a good, clever story. I mean, Steve's, uh, he did. He quite often had um, the timey-wimey sort of thing as his yeah, story motif. Yeah, it was, was timey-wimey timey before it became timey-wimey, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, because in the fires of Vulcan, he had the TARDIS, out, like, being, being, the TARDIS being found in the lava of, of the after Pompeii. And you think, how are they going to get out of that one? Um, so obviously with cold, it's, we've got what on earth is going on here, where we've got Klein coming from a parallel universe uh, or an alternate timeline. I think it's just such a good story. I, th- I mean, I, th- when, I just think it's very, very clever and well plotted out. When was this first issued and how long before Tenet was actually cast as the Doctor? This was out in, I think, 2002. Right, so three years then before it was actually cast. Yep. Or is it 2000, hang on, 2001? 2001. Yeah, okay. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a good... I mean, this was the first time that he did a big finish. He actually got in because he was friends with Toby Longworth, who's uh, playing uh, Schaefer in this. Is that Schaefer, Halton Schaefer? Right. And uh, they were friends, and he, Toby had done a few big finishes by this point, and he said, "If the, I love Doctor Who. If there's any chance you could get me in for one, I would love it. So he his name was mentioned to... Gary Russell, who obviously knew David from his stage work as an up-and-coming young star. So they got him in for this one. And yeah, uh, he was very, very good. He's very good. You, you can almost imagine, you can you can picture him doing it perfectly, can't you? you know, it's yeah. like no, that's what I'm saying, yeah. As yeah, soon as you hear his voice, you visualise it. He's, he's terrific in it, he really is. He's a, he always plays a good baddie, if that makes sense. Because yeah. you think of things he's done throughout his career, things like Secret Smile, he's superb in that. He's great that's in great. Jessica Jones. Yeah. And of course, in the Harry Potter film, where he's just drilling and lips, lips smacking, and almost ready to chew the scenery, he's so good at being a baddie. Let me let me just talk about going back to my earlier 
praiseworthy comment on Sylvester McCoy. What did you guys think of his impression of the Dalek in this? His impression of a Dalek, Tom? Let me explain. You imbecile! Do you know what you've done? I prevented your so-called transfer papers from arriving! I've stopped your plan in its tracks. I've stranded you in Nazi Germany without the documents you need to keep yourself out of a prison cell like this one. <laughs> right. Well, to me, to me, that sounds like a Dalek. It sounds to me like Sylvester staccato delivery. Yeah, it's just, yeah it's that's just, what I meant. It's just what he does, man. When you, see little kids, when you see little kids in playgrounds running around pretending to be Daleks, <laughs> that's what they sound like. <laughs> of course, you've got to remember Klein is a Nazi and what were the Nazis based upon? Yep, the Daleks yep. were based upon the Nazis, I should say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, all, it all comes full circle. I think it's uh, very clever. And of course, Tom, I don't know if you're aware that they actually did a sequel to this and brought Klein back and we actually get to find out what happens with her assistant, Johann Schmidt, Yes, who helps her with out, the TARDIS. Find out who he is, yes, that's right. All right, good, I'll have a listen. What's it called? So his Klein story is the first part of a, and it follow, precedes a three-part story called Survival of the Fittest. Right, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give that a listen. You can actually download it separately. It's available as a one-parter on its own. What Klein story is? Yes. Right. So, thumbs up for Cold It, then. Yes, yes it's, I think um, it's a great story, um, great performance. Tenant is just so good. Um, and you can see why Big Finish brought him back. It's it's not too complicated, but it's complicated enough, and it seeds a character who they've done some really, really good stuff with, because Klein's been back a good few times in the years since. And um, aye, and it's, it's timey-wimey before timey-wimey was, was, was a thing, really. I think Sophie Alder was great in this, and I thought it was quite moving at the end where she decides not to use the name Ace anymore. Uh, that she was going to use a proper name. Uh, because she felt that was a way of, of growing up. I, I thought that was just quite a moving bit of writing. Of course, the, the story at the time when it got released actually got quite a lot of... It was actually panned by a lot of people. They didn't seem to enjoy it. And they also found the sound design and music a bit That's off. right, yeah. Right. I think someone, that really bizarre, because yeah. I had no problems listening to it whatsoever. You know, see, I, I remember the um, the first time I listened to it, thinking it was something wrong with my headphones. And then until I, you know, until I did some googling and found out that there'd been a different a different producer or whatever that worked on it. But the thing that struck me listening to it, there's a scene quite early on in the canteen when, or the, you know, where they're all sort of the doctors having a conversation with with Nicholas Young from the Tomorrow People, and you can hear all the rhubarb rhubarb stuff which has been recorded for the background noise, and you can pick out David Tennant so clearly <laughs> the the guy who's produced it has done such a bad job of separating and mixing everything together. Let's move on to the third of our three projects in this episode. And here's a clue to what we're going to be talking about. Ancient Rome. This is fantastic. It has come. The blue box. I see the most terrible things. Prophecies of women are limited and dull. Only the men folk have the capacity for true perception. I'll tell you where the wind's blowing right now, mate. Doctor, you bring bad luck in this house. The future as dictated by the gods. I demand you tell me who you are. Doctor! The sky's falling. We're in Pompeii. And it's Volcano Day. And given the theme of this episode, it was quite an obvious one to pick on. So um, I will now read out what TARDISFandom.com says uh, about the fires of Pompeii. 
Fires of Pompeii was the second episode of series four of Doctor Who. Narratively, the story was important for explaining why the Doctor can sometimes change history and at other times cannot. Specifically, it introduced the notion of fixed points in time, which would later be the central theme of the television stories The Waters of Mars and The Wedding of Riversong. It also continued the Missing Planets arc, with the Pyroviles mentioning their home planet having been taken much like the Adipose's breeding planet. The episode also introduced the idea of the Destiny Trap, the Doctor and Donna arrive in Pompeii fully aware of what was to happen. Because of this, they were unable to change events once they'd become part of them, although they were able to save at least one person in their family. This concept would later be mentioned by the 11th Doctor in The Time of the Doctor regarding the silence and how their efforts to kill him had created the event they tried to erase. Behind the scenes, the episode was notable for being the first major shoot outside the United Kingdom since the 1996 television movie. Moreover, it was the first time a principal photography unit had been outside its country of production since The Two Doctors. The episode notably featured the first appearance of two actors within the series who went on to play bigger roles during the show's later seasons. It hosted a guest appearance from Karen Gillan, who would later star as the 11th Doctor's companion Amy Pond in series 5, 6 and 7. It also featured a guest appearance by Peter Capaldi, who would later portray the 12th incarnation of The Doctor, and the fact he shared the appearance of a character in this story was not ignored. This would become an important aspect of that Doctor's identity when he made the connection that his face was taken from someone he previously met. Okay, Kenny, what do we think of The Fires of Pompeii? I really enjoy The Fires of Pompeii. I think it's quite often overlooked because there are some really, really great stories towards the end of that season. There's a really great run, but I think this one is an absolute gem. It cements Donna as being a beloved character who you can't help but like, that we're gone are the the shouty, this, the, the, almost like the too loud, brash, shouty character that we're initially introduced to um, with her sarcastic edge. And here we get to see her softer side when she brings that out in the Doctor to, to save the family. Um, I think the setting is great. It's Pompeii is a fantastic place in which to set a story. Big Finish did one similar called The Fires of Vulcan. I always like to imagine that Sylvester and Bonnie Langford are just around the corner in every single scene that we see. And there's nothing to contradict that. Um, I think it's a very, very clever piece of writing. I think we get a good sense of there's a good alien menace there. The fact there's something under underground, which is always a good source of a, a story idea. Who's the writer on this one? The writer on this one is James Moran, who also did some Torchwood. Um, he's, I think he very, very quickly gets the Doctor Donna dynamic sorted. We've got the, the pyrovile threats. And the fact there's some really, really nice clever gags in there. I think they're originally handed down from Russell T. Davis. For example, Lucius Petrus Dextrus means stone arm. That sort of thing. I think there's some there's sort of nice asterisk type wordplay in there. I think the fact we've got uh, Karen Gillan gives a really good first turn. You'd never know that she was Amy Pond at all with all the, the makeup on and the fact that she's playing with a different accent. Um, and Peter Capaldi, praise Lord Capaldi, fantastic human turn, very vulnerable, just a genuine, a proper family man kind of role. And you can imagine that he thought, well, this is, again, like Colin Baker previously, thought this is my one and only chance to be in a Doctor Who, so I'm going to enjoy it and have a great time. And he absolutely does. He's very, very, so you, you feel sympathy for him as his, he looks to be dying with his family. His 
Vesuvius erupts. And of yeah, course, we know what yeah, happens the, next. <clears throat> there's some scenes that are very, you can't say distressing, but they're very emotional. It's when Donna's pleading with the doctor to, to try and stop it. And, you know, when Donna tries to help the little boy and she's trying to tell people not to run down to the beach to go up and, you know, it's, um, and then the scene when the, the TARDIS lands and they rescue Peacap and his family, it's quite, oh, I'm not, I can't say overwrought because that suggests it's over the top. It's not, it's pitched perfectly. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting story really, you know, because, you know, Catherine abandons all vanity and just really, you completely believe that Donna is absolutely broken at the fact that, that you know, the doctor's not going to be able to help anyone. Yeah. Which yeah. is very undoctory. Yeah, but he feels bound that he can't. You know, that's and that, again, that's another really interesting thing about it. It's um, it's nice that 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 he finally gives some justification for the way he behaves in certain, the way he has to behave at certain times. And that 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 horrible scene when he realizes that it's it's his fault that Pompey happens because he has to stop the, you know, he has to stop the baddies. Yeah, I think it's quite nice. Quite nice is the fact that yes, there's it's typical Russell T in many ways. You've got the monsters there, but at the heart of it is a story about a family. I'm glad they um, don't dwell too much in this fixed point in time stuff, because we saw in Waters of Mars where the, the, the heroine refused to be rescued by the Doctor and ended up killing herself. And, you know, if you were to apply that logic to the fires of Pompeii, you'd have Peter Capaldi, you know, sacrificing himself and his family, even though he'd just been rescued by the doctor. You know, you can, you can dwell too much on this sort of thing and take it far too seriously. Ultimately, this is one of those adventures where you just remember that it's, it's fiction and it's good fun and it's heartwarming. And this was incredibly heartwarming. There's a, such a great ending and, and, and just a brilliant cast, every yeah. single person in it. Yeah, in fact, talking of the cast, I actually met one of them this summer at the festival, which was quite right. bizarre. Because I was there to see Fags, Mags and Bags. Um, and afterwards some, was invited... Is this, in, is this in Edinburgh, you mean? At the Edinburgh Festival, yeah. Right, yeah. And afterwards went into the green room uh, with Donald McLeary, one of the big Finnish writers. He's a brother boy. And we were having a chat. And then um, he took me up and introduced me to this bloke who he's known for years called Phil. And I thought, this guy is super familiar. And as soon as he started talking, it clicked and thought, you're the stall holder from the... Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's brilliant. Hours of Vesuvius, so Phil Cornwell, and Phil, uh, he was excellent. brilliant. He's really, really funny, and he absolutely loved the Doctor Who thing. He said that even now he gets sent a trading card that he appeared on and gets from fans, and they, they want him to sign it. So to show us, once you've been in Doctor Who, that's you. Your autograph is forever wanted, and you become a trading card. I think it's, it's, it's I think it's a great story. It's it, very, it it's very human, despite all this, the yeah. tragedy that's going on. Season four is excellent. Really I, season four, I thought, was the strongest of yeah. uh, of Russell T Davis's uh, seasons. Actually, I just thought it was superb. Different sort of hypercost. Oh yes, we're very advanced in Pompeii. In Rome, they're still using the old wood burning furnaces, but we've got hot springs, even from Vesuvius itself. What do you thought of that? Soothsayers. After the great earthquake, seventeen years ago. An awful lot of damage. But we rebuilt. Didn't you think of moving away? Oh, no, then again, San Francisco. That's all the restaurant in Naples. What's up, I don't know. Happens all the time. They say the gods of the underworld are stirring. But after the earthquake, let me guess, is that when the soothsayers started making sense? Oh, yes, very much so. I mean, there's always been, shall we say, imprecise. But then, 
The soothsayers, the augurs, the harrow specs, all of them, they saw the truth again and again. It's quite amazing. They can predict crops and rainfall with absolute precision. Have they said anything about tomorrow? No. Why should they? Why do you ask? No, no, no reason, just asking. The thing I wanted to sort of ask, ask you both what you thought about this was, um, the character that, that Peter Capaldi plays, he's not as, he's not, it's not as big a part as, say, Maxwell was for Colin Baker in Arkham Infinity, or indeed for, you know, for, for Tennant and, and Colditz we talked about. So I was wondering, you know, do we think that the, um, the amount of emphasis that was later given to the character has been, you know, as a, an explanation for why the Twelve Doctor chose the face, do you think that was justified given the, the, the size of the character? And what do we think of the Doctor having to just, you know, what do we think of the re the reference back to the Files of Pompeii in the first place? Personally, I, th I, I thought it was unnecessary. I didn't like it. I'm glad you asked, and I, I agree with you. I, I, have, I have never seen any need to retrospectively justify these things. It's like when Martha needlessly says that she had a cousin who happens to look identical to her, who worked in, in Canary Wharf, yeah. When the Daleks and the Cybermen were battling it out, I mean, we 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 accept, we understand how television works. Yeah. Sometimes an actor is cast in two different roles in the same show. So what? You don't yeah. have to. You don't have to explain it. We get I it think, or not. I think no. the worst one of those was when um, I think it's in this, the the final episode of series four when Martha, not Martha, ah, Gwen Cooper when Gwen Cooper, the, the worst one. Is oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when, when Gwen, oh, the temporary spatial displacement. Yeah, and they refer to the the time and the fact that um the the wonderful wee Miles had been in in that Eccleston episode, and you just think, right, it's an in joke, it's a it's it appeals, but it's just oh, uh, it just took me out. Yeah, she said that one of her ancestors had been in service That's or something. Right. I can think, oh, geez, peace. I'm going to disagree with you, boys. Right. I'm afraid I actually think it's quite a nice touch because we've been given this abrasive doctor. And people are thinking, why is he so abrasive? Why is he so different from having been Matt? And then when you get this wee reminder, it reminds him about, to use a horrible phrase, the little people. It wasn't a major character. It wasn't a Harriet Jones or something. God, the doctor looking like Harriet Jones. There's a scary thought. Um, it wasn't a major character or anything like that. It was the fact it was just one of the little people that he'd helped. And it had shown him, reminded him of his, for want of a phrase, humanity, to show that, oi, doctor, you don't actually just go around, See, you're bringing down empires and toppling them like that, you help the man in the street or the woman in the street. I, I thought, I, I really didn't care for it because it, there'd been something like seven years between the episodes being broadcast and I just thought it, it was it was too inward looking it was too navel gazing I just thought, I mean they, they, there was never any, you know, they didn't have to give an explanation for why um, you know, Pat Gorman turned up in every single story in the 70s, do you know, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Or why Donald G, Eckersley in the Monster of Peladon looks quite... But people guy. weren't re-watching constantly in those days, Dave. Yeah, we didn't I have know, the DVD experience now. So and it was something they made a big fuss about, so he's been in it before. So yeah. I think it was, just, it was a nice... I mean, it doesn't detract from the story in any way. I think it's a nice, lovely re-edition, so it's not... Yeah, to me, I, no problem yeah, with it whatsoever. Yeah. Well, I, 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 didn't, I didn't care for it at all, sadly. Yeah, You're wrong, we're, Dave. We're, Your we're, opinion we're, is wrong. We're here to we're here to we're here to disagree. Well, listen. On that note of disagreement, although we I think we all agree that Pompey Pompey is a brilliant episode. Yes. Let's wind it up there and remind people to please follow us uh, on Twitter. Please listen to us on iTunes and leave a review if you if you like us. And we'll be back here in a week or so. 
with another Power of Three pod. So from me, Tom Harris, goodbye. From me, Kenny Smith, so long and farewell and enjoy the fish. Um, yeah, for me, David, take care. Love you lots. Mm-hmm.